welcome. Good morning. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, a black one. And you'll be able to follow along there as well as follow along on the screens here behind us. Uh, as I find my place and as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of a, an introduction to the text that we're going to look at here today. We've completed Jesus' discussion on discipleship that began there, if you uh, look all the way back into Luke chapter 8, really at the beginning, we've gone through three pictures that really all had to do with Jesus talking to his disciples, those who were following him, and those people who were listening to his ministry. And he gave him this image, this picture of the parable of the soils, probably one of the most well-known parables in all the Bible. And then as Jesus began to explain more about what it means to hear and obey, what it means to take his words and his teaching and then begin to apply them to their to their lives. We looked last week at the two images that he gave us, one of a lamp that, of a lamp that gives illumination to those who are all around, and then another image of the family that he gave to us. And all along the way, there's been this consistent theme of hearing and obeying, hearing and obeying. So when we come to this passage here this morning, this is an incredibly popular passage. This is one that you could probably tell to somebody sitting across the table if I just mentioned it off the top of my head. It's a story of Jesus calming the wind and the waves. It's not very long before you start listing the miracles of Jesus that you get to this one. You may think of, you know, Jesus raising Lazarus and Jesus walking on water and Jesus uh, feeding the 5,000. But pretty soon you get to Jesus stilling the wind and the waves. So this is a, an important miracle in the life of Jesus and it's an important miracle in the life of the disciples as well, especially as we're on the heels of listening to Jesus talk about what it means to hear and obey. This miracle is a private one. Sometimes we've seen Jesus do miracles in the synagogue, right, where he's casting out demons before. We've seen Jesus among the crowd raise the dead with the woman uh, whose son died as they were leaving the city of Nain. We've seen Jesus engage the crowds in a, in a variety of ways, but this is a miracle that's a private one. It's only for the disciples. It happens way out, far away from land, in the middle of a lake with just the disciples and just Jesus. Nobody else sees it. Luke has to get this story secondhand. So when we begin the story of the wind and the waves, of Jesus calming the sea, all of us in this room consider our own storms, don't we? There's not one person in here in a, in a room this size with as many people as we have here this morning. There's very certainly somebody here in this room who is going through a storm. If you live long enough, maybe beyond, you know, eight or nine, right now the eight or nine-year-old crises that are in my house are pretty minimal. But as you start to journey in life, you start to hit storms. You hit rough patches. You hit water. You hit crises that come in to your life, whether it's vocational crises, economic crises, relational storms, familial storms, health storms educational storms, whatever it is, sooner or later, you're going to hit a rough patch. And for a lot of us, you know, when we encounter storms in our lives, we, we all have this tendency to try to trace back our decisions. Do you do this like I do this? 
that I hit a rough patch and I go all the way back to 14 and I go, what decision did I make when I was 14 that resulted in the crisis that I am in now? And you know why I do that? I do that because I have great faith in me. Because I really believe that I am the captain of my life. I believe that my choices matter, that there is real cause and effect, and that there are real consequences to my decisions. And we've even seen that in the book of Luke up to this point. You remember the story of this simple woman forgiven by Jesus at the table with the Pharisee. The Pharisee himself looked at her and go, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't know who's touching him. Does he know the history? Does he know how sinful this woman is? Does, does he know the, the stories? Does he know how popular she is, how infamous she is in our community? And we saw the beauty in that moment of Jesus taking someone with lots of deliberately poor, sinful choices that have ravaged her life in Jesus' tenderness and caring for her and forgiving her sins and redeeming her and freeing her from her past so that she might walk in forgiveness because of Jesus. But this story is, it's a little bit different. This story has real no discernible introduction to it. There's nothing about this story that's an inciting moment. There's no pattern of unbelief. There's no hardness of heart. There's no mental internal dialogue that's going on that starts this parable. So we have to ask when we reach, I'm not saying it's a parable, this miracle. When we reach a miracle like this of such gravity in the ministry of Jesus Christ, we have to ask how do we handle the storms that come into our lives with really for no discernible reason. What do we do with an economic downturn? What do we do with a real estate market that just happens? What do we do with businesses that just decide to downsize? What do we do with the medical diagnosis when our body rebels against us and does something that we don't approve of and we don't like? What do we do when we face situations where we feel vulnerable and helpless and weak because of no real decisions that we made. Life happens to us. How do we face things that are beyond our ability to influence, control, or change? Have you been there? Have you had those things come into your life where you go, I, I don't know what to do now? And this miracle, you know what I've noticed in raising six kids over the years, this miracle is in every single children's Bible. Do you know that? There's not one children's Bible. They all have Noah and the ark. And all of them have Jesus calming the wind and the waves. And if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know that you've probably heard this miracle before. You could mention this miracle. You could tell this miracle. And I think there's, there's a little bit of danger in a miracle like this because of our familiarity with it, quite frankly. It's because we're so familiar with, yeah, 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 he calmed the winds and the wave. Let's move on. What's the next interesting thing that Jesus did? That we, we have a tendency to inevitably neglect, if not ignore outright, the lessons that we're supposed to take from a passage like this. And Jesus and the disciples is really here to show us two big things about ourselves. One about ourselves, I'm sorry, one about ourselves and, and one about Jesus. 
So as we get into this, I just, I want you to think of maybe you're not in a storm today. Maybe that's not where you are, but sooner or later, the storm clouds will gather and you will face yourself in a, in a situation like the disciples are here and you will feel at the end of yourself. So what are you going to do there? But maybe you're in a storm today. Maybe you're right smack in the middle of something that, where, that makes you feel vulnerable and weak and, and you don't see a way out and you don't understand what God is doing. Well, then this story is for you. When Luke writes to the wider Gentile world, what he does for us is put Jesus in the context of something that everybody experiences. So I don't care what your religious background is. I don't care if you've ever been in church before. If, if today is maybe the first day that you decided to come into this church, what I want you to hear and see in a, in a story like this is to show you that Jesus is the Lord of the storm and even yours. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to get in here to Luke chapter 8. If you've got it, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25 is where we're going to be. So would you pray with me? Father, for these few minutes, we ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Would you give us sensitive eyes and ears and hearts to what you're doing in our lives? For those who are in this room who are going through a storm of epic proportions, I pray that this text would minister deeply to their hearts, that you would make yourself visible and seen, that you would give us eyes of faith to understand what you would teach us here today. For those of us who look back on the storms of our lives, and maybe we've come through some significant ones, that we might apply the lessons that we see in a passage like this to be able to understand the patient, diligent kindness that you have been doing to work into us and to create in us hearts of faith. Father, most of all, we pray that you might shape us through our time in your word, that your spirit would give life, that your truth would be uh, clearly seen here today, and that we would be encouraged by putting our eyes upon Christ here this morning. So Father, bless our ambition to know you and to serve you, our desire to hear and obey, and to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke 8, verse 22, y'all there? Here we go, verse 22. One day. Now, as I said, there's no lead up. There's no inciting moment in this story. In fact, Luke, when he writes these four verses, is very, very terse. In fact, most of these, most of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make this a very short, very tight passage. It's filled with description and dialogue. That's it. There's no proper names. Jesus himself isn't mentioned. None of the disciples are mentioned. There's a description of the storm and there's four lines of dialogue. And when Luke does that and tells us of this incredible miracle, he does it in such a way that we might draw our eyes to the things that are said so that we might understand the miracle. That makes sense to you? We don't just come into a miracle like this and go, wow, he did it. But it's actually the dialogue and the description of this conversation between Jesus and the disciples that are going to help us understand why this lesson is so important for us here today. 
It's going to give us the tools to understand how we navigate our own storm. So Luke begins on a day. It doesn't matter when it was. Mark tells us it happens after Jesus had told the parables. But Luke just merely lets us know it was, it was a day. He decides to get into a boat with his disciples. Now, you remember the last time Jesus was in a boat with the disciples? If you've been with us through the course of the book of Luke, the last time Jesus got into a boat with the disciples was when Jesus said, get into the boat, let your nets down for a catch. So the last time we saw Jesus and the disciples in the boat, we were ready for a nature miracle, weren't we? Where Jesus produced this incredible catch of fish, so much that the nets were breaking, so much that we needed a second boat. And so much so that it caused Peter to fall at his feet and declare that he was a sinner. Well, we're going to have another nature miracle here. So Luke lets us know that here's Jesus on a day with the disciples. And he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, I want you to see something in our first, here's, you see the first, here's our first line of dialogue. On a particular day, Jesus and the disciples get into the boat, and Jesus decides to tell the disciples to go to the other side of the lake. Now, I'm no pro-exegete, but Jesus is leading the story, amen? Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a destination. Jesus desires for the disciples to accompany him on this journey. Now, you're not going to see even where we get to in the destination until next week when you see Jesus and the, and the garrison demoniac, the man with a thousand demons in him, or 6,000, whatever the legion means. The destination really doesn't matter. What matters in this part of the story is the journey. So Jesus creates this story, creates this dynamic by initiating a trip. He says, let's go and let's get together and we're going to head to the other side of the lake. Now, as I said, we have a tendency to think we're in control of our own lives. We have a tendency to think that we have a plan, we have a direction, we need to make decisions, we've got an ambition, we've got a place to get to, we've got people to see, things to do, places to go. But when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I've said this before to our church, so maybe if you haven't heard it before, you weren't there on that Sunday, it's important to know that as a Christian, when you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, it's Jesus who is leading. It is not you who is leading. Okay. The sermon was about to take a way different turn. <clears throat> Jesus makes a decision. We're going somewhere. Which means Jesus has a plan. Which means Jesus knows what they're about to experience. Which means Jesus is going to take them on this trip for a very particular reason. To teach them a very important lesson. Which means... Because we know the storm is coming. We know the stilling of the storm is coming. We know how they're going to react to the storm. You've read this story before. It's no surprise. But it lets you know right at the beginning that when you have a relationship with Jesus, the storms can come into your life because you are obeying Jesus. Your willful following of Jesus means that he will create storms to teach you about who he is and who you are. See, because we have such a high value on our own opinion, strength, and relative experience in education and all of those things, we think the storms are only and always bad. Because we have made some decisions. Anybody make bad decisions this week that you regret? Yeah, amen. And we look at our lives and we go, oh man, I wish I had that do-over. 
I wish I wouldn't have made that decision. Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting up to a banquet of the consequences of my own poor choices. And if we're not careful in our lives, we can presume that every crisis, every storm in our life is really a storm of our own making. But it's not true here, is it? The disciples have been called by Jesus into relationship with Jesus. They've been taught by Jesus. And now Jesus is inviting them into a boat, into a story, into a storm. So what do they do? The end of verse 22, they set out. So are you ready for what they're about to experience? Are you, are you ready for the inevitable ups and downs and storms of life that are going to come explicitly because you are obedient to Jesus Christ? Christians, is that true? Have you had some seasons in life that you look back on, you go, there's no other way that I can understand where I am except because I was willing to obey what Jesus said. Well, that's where the disciples are. They're willing. Okay, Jesus, we're going to the other side. Let's go. I loved those parables about the soils. Wasn't that a good parable? And the light. And light. We're family. Aren't we family? Jesus said, hearing of mothers and brothers and hearing, we're hearing and doing. Isn't that awesome? Jesus says, get in the boat. All right, let's get in the boat. Let's go. No doubt they're discussing the recent parables they heard of Jesus Christ. They all get into the boat, verse 23, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Which I love that this is there because Luke immediately gives us some uh, narrative dimension to the story. We're sailing, we're talking, we're listening. Jesus falls asleep. And if nothing else, what I think Luke does for us here is give us a picture of Jesus' humanity. Jesus took naps. Amen for naps? Man, amen for naps. Aren't you glad? Jesus is often described as hungry, thirsty, weeping. His heart being turned and twisted at the difficulty that people are experiencing. But the only spot in all the Bible where Jesus is described sleeping is here. So when Jesus falls asleep in the boat, no doubt after significant amounts of energy given to teaching and preaching and telling parables to the disciples, we have a picture of Jesus being fully man. He really slept. But the contrast is drawn between an individual who is fully at rest, fully at peace, completely vulnerable, calm, and unconscious with what Luke gives us here. A windstorm came down on the lake. Now, if you don't know where they are, they're in the Sea of Galilee. If you don't know the, the uh, topography of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee sits like in a bowl. And around the bowl are mountains, kind of sheer uh, rock faces, in particularly many kinds of places. And through these rock faces and through these mountains comes winds. And the winds come down over the mountains and they rest down upon the warm air of the lake and the cold air on top. So much so that it can create violent storms over the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in the late 90s, the storms were recorded as being so bad that they created six to ten foot waves on the Sea of Galilee. So when this windstorm comes down, when this windstorm term is used only, under, only other in one place in the New Testament over in 2 Peter that talk about false teachers who are driven along by a storm. 
So as Jesus is unconscious and at peace and completely at rest and calm, you have the contrast of nature itself that is angry, nature itself that is stirred up, nature itself that is filled with pressure and aggression flowing down upon this lake, flowing down and around the boat that the disciples are experiencing. And at the end of verse 23, you see how Luke records it there, that they were filling with water. The boat is being swamped. The boat is being filled up as waves crash over it. And not only that, they were in danger. Now, obviously, you, you, we've seen several fishermen called to Jesus Christ, right? You remember the story of Peter, James, and John leaving their lucrative fishing business and coming to be with Jesus. They've no doubt fished on the Sea of Galilee before. But they've also got Matthew, a tax collector, and I think we could give Matthew, you know, a little bit of grace because, you know, CPAs aren't really good on the water. And you can imagine the rest of the disciples who've been called for a variety of backgrounds that they all are in this boat at this time experiencing a storm of such gravity that it's making everybody, even the professional fishermen, nervous. So that this storm is, has been created in such a way to totally expose the previous experience of the men in the boat. They don't have a category for this. They can't rely on, you know, their, their background. They can't rely on the fact that we've been through something like this before. They may have seen storms, but they'd never seen one like this. They're completely at the edge of their previous experience. They're facing something completely new and foreign to their experience, their wisdom, their education, and training. This storm is very clearly beyond them. So, your first piece of dialogue with Jesus' initiative. Let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. Here's your second piece of dialogue that helps us begin to understand what is going on in this story. Look at verse 24. And they went and they woke him. Now you should be, I don't know how heavy of a sleeper you are. My kids aren't that heavy of sleepers. When, when the Charleston summer after nor, afternoon storms hit, my kids have a hard time going to sleep. Even in the middle of the night, you've been probably woken up by storms and lightning that have happened in our city. But I don't know if you've ever tried to sleep on a boat. I've never tried to sleep on a boat, and I've never tried to sleep on a boat in a storm. I've never tried to sleep on a boat in a storm that's as bad as any fisherman has ever seen. And what's fascinating to me is the storm doesn't wake Jesus up. Don't you think, don't you expect that? Don't you expect a storm that's so bad that it's swamping the boat and putting them in danger? Don't you expect Jesus to go, huh? You let a little bit. I think I expect that. But the second line of dialogue in this story lets us know that it's not the storm that wakes Jesus up. It's not until they are filled with water, until they are in danger, until they w uh, go wake him, and until they say something to Jesus that Jesus wakes up. It's not until they ask that he intervenes. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? If a boat shaking in the middle of the lake doesn't wake Jesus up, what is it that wakes Jesus up? Well, let's see what the disciples have to say. 
The disciples shout at Jesus, no doubt, master, master, intense emotion. Anytime a word like that is repeated, you have intense emotion behind what they are about to say. But the thing that wakes Jesus up isn't just merely being yelled at by his disciples in the middle of a storm. The thing that wakes Jesus up is the assessment the disciples have of their situation. We are perishing. Literally, we are going to die. We are facing certain death. There is no hope. There is nothing else that we can do except cry out to Jesus who is in the boat. Now, we don't really know what their assessment and evaluation is of Jesus at this point is doing. They know he's a teacher. They know he's done some miracles. They know he tells them parables. They know he's raised the dead. He casts out demons. He preaches and teaches in the synagogue. They know he did the miraculous catch of fish. But what do you think is in the disciples' mind when they wake Jesus up? What do you think, what would be in your mind when you wake Jesus up? You think he's going to make the boat bigger? You think he's going to make the boat stronger? Do you think it's going to be like a movie where he takes the, I don't know what the thing, the steering wheel, the, <laughs> takes the deal and he sea sprays in his face and he navigates through the waters and gets them to the shore and everybody applauds. I don't, what do you think happens? You think he tells them to pick up an oar? You think they're telling him to pick up an oar? Jesus, get an oar. What are you doing sleeping? Don't you see how bad out it is out here? Don't you see what is going on? Jesus, we are on the brink of death. You think he's going to tell them a parable about waves? I, I, that's probably what I would have thought. I probably would have woke him up and be like, give us something to help us understand what is going on in this situation. Master, we are perishing. We don't know what's in their mind. We don't know if they're thinking clearly. All we know is that they cry out to Jesus. They speak to Jesus. And Jesus speaks to the storm. And he awoke. And it's very simple. I mean, you couldn't get a more terse description than what Luke gives you here, could you? He awoke. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was calm. I mean, I don't even think you could... You, no, you can't take out any part of that sentence and the sentence still makes sense. Why is it so brief? Why is it so terse? Why is it so simple that something that causes such consternation and emotional fervor in the minds and hearts of the disciples who are gripped by fear in a storm that they've never experienced the magnitude of before, why is it simply described in this way? Now, if you've been with us through the course of Luke, I want to draw your attention to something that is very important in this verse. It's the word rebuked. Now, the word rebuke is a rare word in Luke's gospel. It's not one that he just throws around randomly. In fact, it's only been used two times up to this point in Luke's gospel. Do you know that? The two other times where this word has been used, number one, it's been used of when Jesus rebukes demons. And everybody is amazed at the word of authority that Jesus has, that he rebukes the demons and demons obey what he says. 
The second time it's used is with Peter's mother-in-law when she has a fever and it says he stands over the fever and he rebukes the fever and it leaves. The third time it's used is right here. Now, what is Luke trying to show us by using a word like that? And I think what he's trying to do for us is to show us a little bit of who Jesus is. Because what are the things that make us the most vulnerable as humans? What are the things where we quickly reach the end of our resources? What are the things in life where we quickly come to the end of ourselves and go, I have no hope, I have no help, I don't know what else to do? Biblically, if nothing else, it's the demonic, it's physical sickness, and it's nature. Do you know that? If you face, anytime humans face spiritual warfare, imagine what has happened in this book up to this point. You'll see it even more next week when Jesus casts out the man with the demons called Legion. But anytime Jesus speaks, the spiritual forces of, in, of darkness completely crumble and submit and obey to who he is. Anytime that Jesus speaks over physical suffering in our bodies, he's, they are completely submissive to Jesus and who he is. And now Luke introduces us to a story to where it's nature itself, wind and waves that are raging that Jesus speaks to and everything obeys. If nothing else, Luke wants us to know that he is Lord of the demonic, he is Lord of our bodies, and he is Lord even of nature itself. Nothing can speak, nothing can stand up to the simplicity of Jesus' word. There is no opposition when Jesus speaks. Now, look with me and what he does with the rebuke. He rebukes the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. You notice there's no calming. It's not that Jesus spoke and then everything slowly died down until there was a nice breeze. Jesus spoke, immediately it's calm. Isn't that incredible? The most unstable and unpredictable things in all of creation, the very things that meteorologists get paid to guess wrongly, <laughs> Jesus completely, significantly, and with no opposition whatsoever, commands and they cease. The wind stops, the waves stop, everything is glass calm on the water. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. So if we, if we see in Jesus sleeping a picture of Jesus as fully man, we have a different image here, don't we? Because Jesus just did something that the Old Testament tells us only God can do. We read a little bit of it this morning in Psalm 93. You could also read Psalm 107. I won't read it for you. You can read it this afternoon after you follow in the steps of Jesus and take a nap. But the point that Luke wants us to say is that here is Christ in the middle of this storm and he is both fully man and he is also fully God. Now, that's a pretty incredible miracle. Amen? Pretty awesome. 
Let me give you a, a story. I, I came across this story in, in my studies. Uh, I've heard this years ago, and I asked our staff if they'd ever heard it before, and they, they hadn't. So I thought, maybe you've never heard it before. Uh, there's a story about a king in uh, about A.D. 1000. He was the king of Denmark, Norway, and England. He had all three under his control. His name was King Canute. He was an Anglo-Saxon king at the time, and he was a God-fearer. He, he believed in Jesus and who he is. And it said that uh, one of the more incredible things that he did during his reign uh, was that he decided to go down to the water with this entire, uh, his entire, uh, what's it called, the group of people around a king. Uh, Posse's the wrong term. The what? Entourage. I like that. That's way better than posse. So here's the king and his entourage. And it's recorded in a historian about 1100 AD. And he tells this story like this. I'll just read it to you. When King Canute had reigned for 20 years, he departed this life at Shaftesbury and was buried at Winchester in the old minister. A few words must be devoted to the power of this king. Before him, there had never been in England a king of such great authority. He was lord of all Denmark, of all England, of all Norway, and also of Scotland. In addition to the many wars in which he was most particularly illustrious, he performed three fine and magnificent deeds. I'll spare you the first two, but here's the third that he speaks of. The third was that when he was at the height of his ascendancy, he ordered his chair to be placed on the seashore as the tide was coming in. Then he said to the rising tide, you are subject to me as the land on which I am sitting is mine and no one has resisted my overlordship with impunity. I command you therefore not to rise onto my land nor to presume to wet the clothing or the limbs of your master. But the sea came up as usual and disrespectfully drenched the king's feet and shins. So jumping back, the king cried, let all the world know that the power of kings is empty and worthless and there is no king worthy of the name, save him by whose will heaven and earth and the sea obey eternal laws. Thereafter, King Canute never wore the golden crown on his neck, but placed it on the image of the crucified Lord in eternal praise of God the great king, by whose mercy may the soul of King Canute enjoy rest. He got it. He understood that whatever self-esteem he had, Whatever historical wars that he have conquered, no matter how much authority and rulership and land that was under his dominion, his position was second to the one who can calm the wind and the waves. Now, we've had two pieces of dialogue up to this point. Jesus said, get in the boat. The disciple said, master, master, we're perishing. But if since you're probably in your life not going to see Jesus calm the wind and the waves... You're not going to be on the boat with him. In fact, this story leaves the boat really in the mouths and the experiences of the disciples who will now be commissioned to go forth and do ministry in Jesus Christ's name. But we have it. We read it. And our eyes are drawn to think and understand about who Jesus is. The question is, what does it mean for us? How might we understand what Jesus wants to teach us in our own storms? Isn't that the point? 
because you want to know in your storms and I want to know in my storms what is it that Jesus is doing? What, what essential truth am I missing? What lesson do I need to apply and to grow in as I face these storms as I walk through my life as a Christian with Jesus? What am I going to do? How am I supposed to face them? How do I understand them? And the answer to those questions comes in verse 25. The answer comes in a question that Jesus has the audacity to ask them. If Jesus isn't asking this question of you, you would slap this person in the mouth so fast. But Jesus has the authority and the audacity to ask his disciples this question in verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? See, it's one thing to have faith when the bank account's good, when the cars aren't broken, when the relationships are going well, we got no family strife. It's one thing to have faith when my job is going well, my educational pursuits, when I got that good grade. It's, it's good when, my, when there's unity in the, in the romantic relationships I have. It's easy to have faith when my body is healthy, when I don't need surgery, when I don't have a medical diagnosis that I don't understand what it means and even the doctors don't understand what it means. So when Jesus asks this question, he gives us, I think, several very important lessons for us to understand how we ought to act in our own storms. Number one, faith is the root issue to Jesus. Jesus could ask a lot of questions, right? Why are you so bad at rowing? Why didn't you let down the sails? Where is your courage? Why is this boat so small? Right? He could ask a variety of questions. Why did you wake me up? I mean, I would think that's fair, right? But Jesus doesn't ask that question. He asks a question about the hearts of the men who are in the boat. He asks a personal reflection question. They just saw one of the most incredible miracles ever and Jesus isn't even looking at the water because that's not the point of the storm. Jesus is asking them, where is your faith? For Jesus to ask that implies that this storm was designed to show the disciples something about themselves, right? It means that this storm was created to accomplish a spiritual lesson in their hearts. Don't you hate that? That God can create storms as you are walking with him that will reveal something about you that you didn't know. So faith is the root issue to Jesus. Essentially, Jesus says, in this storm, you should be trusting me. Your eyes should be on me. That there should be faith in who I am in the midst of this storm. See, faith for us a lot of times is it's propositional. It's not experiential. It's, yeah, I trust that Jesus has said some stuff and he's done some stuff. And yeah, I walk by faith. But when, we, when crisis hits and storms hits, all of a sudden our faith is, is pushed into the experiential, right? Our faith is pushed into now having to actually believe some things and act on them in the midst of a storm. So when Jesus says, where is your faith? What's the expectation? I expect you to access your faith in the storm. I didn't expect you to access your faith when we were on the shore. 
But when you're going to follow me, then this whole life, remember 2 Corinthians, we don't walk by sight, but by faith. See, this is the hard work of a Christian. This is where rubber meets the road. This is where when I'm faced with storms that I can't understand, I can't influence, and I can't control, I'm left with faith, with what I believe about Jesus. Where I have to take the truths of what I know about Christ and apply them into this situation such that my trust is not in the storm getting better, the storm being different, in my past recent educational history, or the fact I've even seen things before, but my faith alone is directed and focused on Christ. That's why I think what the disciples do in this passage is really, really beautiful, because they bring it to Jesus. Amen? that they bring in the middle of a storm they can't control, can't influence, can't understand, they come to Christ. So faith is more than propositional. Faith is the central idea that Jesus is trying to get at here. Imagine how tempted you would be to put your eyes and your feelings and your heart on anything else other than Christ in this situation. Why? Because it's reasonable. Can't you see the storm? Can't you see the consequences? Can't you see we're going to die? Can't you see that John's over here not bailing out as much water as he could? Can't you see that the boat is swamped? Can't you see that we're in danger? Look, you know this. I do this. I do this all the time. I'm in the middle of a storm, and what do I want to do? I want to describe the storm. I don't want to put my faith in Jesus. Do you do that too? Can we get coffee? Sure. Let me tell you about the 38 things that are wrong in my life right now in the middle of this storm. The boat is sinking. We're in danger. We can't get the water out of the boat. This storm is real bad. The wind thing is doing this. And that, 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 that. We list all the significant descriptors of the storm. Luke doesn't do that. Luke tells us wind comes down, hits the boat, swamps the boat. They're in danger. Jesus calms it. Why? Because the point is not the storm. The point is not to describe the storm. The point is not to give you the, the relative wind speed of the storm and the how high the waves are. The point is where is your faith? The point is what is happening in your heart when storms hit. J.C. Ryle in his great commentary in the book of Luke puts it like this. It is only too true that sight and sense and feeling make men poor theologians. It is only too true that sight and sense and feeling make men poor theologians. So number one, faith is the point. Number two, when Jesus asked, where is their faith? He's essentially saying that a storm is no excuse for lack of faith. Isn't that when we leave our faith at home, when we face a storm? Jesus, don't you see how bad out it is? Don't you see we're going to perish? Don't you see we're swamped? Don't you see the problems that we're facing? Don't you see how hard this is for me? Don't you see how vulnerable and weak I am? And Jesus retorts and comes back at us and goes, where is your faith? A storm is no excuse for lack of faith. That's the very time we need our faith, isn't it? It's the very time we need to apply what we know about Jesus and who he is. But number three, I think this is important. When Jesus asks, where is your faith? Jesus asks this question on the heels of an experience they've never had before. Listen to me here. Jesus expects us to apply our faith in brand new situations that we've never experienced before. Right? You remember when the, the, the uh, nation of Israel comes out of the Exodus and they're leaving and every, the firstborn has just been killed and they're on their way, they're following Moses out and they get to the Red Sea and they've got Pharaoh behind them, the Red Sea in front of them and the nation of Israel turns to, turns to Moses and they go, were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to die in the wilderness? Why do they ask that? 
because they've never seen God do anything like the Red Sea before. Why in the world would that be in their mind before? So this story in our storms, you're going to face storms that nobody else has ever experienced. You're going to face peculiar storms that are designed to expose the faith and unbelief that live in your heart. And other people might have different storms, but you're going to face storms that are situations that are so perfectly tailored and woven to you that they're there to expose the faith that's happening in your heart. That's how much God cares about developing faith in you. He will tailor make a storm to bring you to the end of your ability to turn your eyes to him and for you to cry out to him and for him to ask, where's your faith now? If Jesus is who he says he is, then Jesus believes the only reasonable response is faith. See, for many of us, when we face struggles that we've never faced before, we, we leave our faith at home because we're startled, we're surprised that I, I have faith for lots of other things, but now God has tailor-made a, a story in which I need to access faith and I've never done this before. And it's right at that point, right at that crux of our vulnerability and Jesus' sufficiency where faith lives, where faith comes alive. So let's look at dialogue piece number four. We've learned some things about the disciples, have we not? But this text closes in one verse that gives us really the big lesson that we're supposed to learn about Jesus. And they were afraid and they marveled. Why were they afraid? The storm's over. Well, the reason they're afraid is there's something stronger than the storm. Amen? Why else are you afraid? I'm afraid that there's a power greater than nature itself. I'm afraid that there's someone here who can speak and nature obeys completely, submissively, and totally. Not only that, they marvel. When Luke uses these words of uh, fear and marvel together, it's typically used in the early part of his book to refer to the angels that invade and speak to Zechariah and to the shepherds. The shepherds will marvel and Zechariah will be gripped in fear. It's when the divine intersects humanity. This is how mankind responds, in fear and in wonder. But look at what they say. They say to one another, who then is this? That's, that's a great question, isn't it? Who'd you think he was? And they ask this question of identity on the other side of the miracle. They see Jesus do something that he's never done before in their human experience. They see Jesus do the miraculous, which causes them to ask this question, who then is this? This is the question of identity. If this is who Jesus is, that he can calm the wind and the waves, who is this then that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? So if on one hand, the storm is meant to expose what's going on inside of us, the storm is meant to diagnose the spiritual health of our hearts, whether or not we are actually walking by faith, whether or not we're able to apply what we know about Jesus to the current pressures and the storm of the season we're in. Then another element of the storm, and this is an important one, is to show us something very important about Jesus. On one hand, it's to teach you about who you are. The other hand, it's meant to teach you about who Jesus is. 
And you've got to think that on the heels of these parables where Jesus has been, you know, he's been a great storyteller. And man, he's been a great miracle worker. Man, he's done some pretty interesting things that they can no longer treat Jesus like their own personal counselor or therapist. They can't treat Jesus as merely a miracle worker. They can't treat Jesus as just a good teacher or some like political leader that they might put their hope in to fix their social problems. Because when Jesus speaks and wind and water obeys, they have to ask a deeper question about who Jesus is. They have to admit and they have to confess that this one who we follow is God. Now, what's interesting is the word that Luke uses right at the end of this story. Now, Luke has been consistent in teaching us about hearing and obeying. Remember Luke chapter 6, this is what the man is like who hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man who builds his house on the rock. Here's the parable of the soils. Here's what, uh, that you need to be careful how you hear. Here, the seed is the word of God. And here's the one who hears and obeys my word, holds it fast in a good heart. He produces fruit with patience. Here's the one who sees my word, is illumined by my word, and then lives their life accordingly. Here's the one who, when they hear and they obey my word, they become a part of my spiritual family. And all of that is very, very encouraging. But on the other side of this parable, Luke comes to the end and says, who is this that he commands? The winds and the waves, and they obey him. This is one of the core issues of your spiritual obedience to Jesus Christ, is who you believe him to be. You will never obey Jesus if you don't believe he's God. Never. I don't care who you are. If you just think he's a marginally good teacher and that's your perspective of Jesus, your obedience will only go that far. You'll come to him for advice, but you won't come to him to submit in humility. You won't actually believe that what he says and when he speaks controls the very elements of nature. If you don't believe that about Jesus, then you'll never obey him. You'll never really submit the relational, economic, vocational storms of your life into his hands and say he is actually able to be in control. You won't do that. You'll take control back. You'll sing something on Sunday. You'll believe a couple things about him that make it feel good, but you won't treat him like God. And the disciples' framework of Jesus Christ is shattered. Because they've never considered before that he can command the wind and the waves and they obey with complete humility and submission. What does that mean for our own lives? How serious should we take the word of Christ? How swiftly should we close our mouth and obey what he says? Because if creation itself will obey, if demons themselves will obey, if physical sicknesses will obey, what will we do? How will we respond? See, the very last purpose behind the storm is to confront our own tendency to hear what he says and to not obey. That's why Luke puts this where he does. So as we close, and you have your own storms in this room that I'm going to pray for here in a second, the storm that you are facing today is meant to teach you about what is going on in your heart. So if you're facing a storm today, you're facing something you've never faced before, you're facing something that's totally beyond your ability to control, influence, or understand, then I would ask you, and I think Jesus would ask you, is where is your faith? What are you putting your faith in? Where does your trust ultimately rest? 
Is your faith put upon the person who has the authority to still the wind and the waves? What is happening at the level of your spiritual life when you face storms that you can't understand, when you face storms that are too strong for you? Don't be afraid to ask that question. But number two, your storm teaches you about Jesus. On the other side of this storm, the disciples learned something that they could not learn about Jesus any other way. So that really the storms in our lives are an invitation to come face to face with Jesus in a deeper way. Do you know that? Storms are not arbitrary in Jesus' plan for your life. They're designed to draw you near to him, to cause you to cry out in prayer to him, to come to Christ and say, I'm perishing, I have no hope unless you speak. All storms for us are developmental in that way, and they're designed to draw us into a deeper and deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ, to continue to trust him for things that we couldn't possibly ask or imagine, to trust him in situations that we can't possibly handle on our own. So I would invite you this morning, if you are facing a storm, to hear Jesus' words for you as an invitation to cry out to him. So Father, we pause as we consider a story of this magnitude and we confess how quick we are to run to all sorts of other things in our storms other than you. We confess our weakness and our inability. We confess our misunderstanding. We confess uh, the fact in which so often we bring a limited faith that we haven't tested before into new scenarios and new waters that, uh, Father, are storms that we've never faced before. So for those in this room who are facing storms like that, I pray that you might draw them deeper into a relationship with you, that you would, they would hear your exhortation to consider where their faith is to consider the new opportunity they have for intimacy with you. And Father, would you show yourself strong in those storms and do things that uh, perhaps they've never considered you to do before. So Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.